TED Audio Collective. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, I'm Chris Addison. Welcome to the TED interview. Today, I'm resharing with you a conversation with Christiana Figueres from last December because it connects directly to an amazing event that's happening this coming Saturday, 10 10 2020. I really want everyone listening to this to be part of that event if you possibly can. So, Christiana has probably done more than anyone in the world to bring people together over the climate issue. In her role at the United Nations, she was credited as the key architect of the Paris Climate Agreement, which probably remains humanity's best roadmap into a hopeful future. And that's because she found ways to persuade people to change their assumptions about what was possible. In this episode, we talk about this major new initiative from TED, which we had just kicked off back then when this conversation happened. It's called Countdown. It's a global initiative to champion and accelerate solutions to the climate crisis. The goal is to build a better future by cutting greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030 in the race to a zero-carbon world, a world that's safer, cleaner, fairer, frankly better for everyone. And now, it's hard to believe it, but despite a global pandemic and the most challenging year that many of us have seen in our lives, it's finally come together. On 10-10-2020, Saturday, we're kicking off with a virtual event that will be live streaming on YouTube. There's going to be a global audience numbering in the millions. We've got some incredible speakers like Prince William, Al Gore, and of course, Christiana Figueres herself. Many others, great artists, youth activists, great scientists. So look, I hope you enjoy this conversation and that you'll tune in with us on YouTube at 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time on Saturday. If by any chance it's already passed, October 10th, when you're hearing this, you can still find all of the content from that day by going to countdown.ted.com. So go to that website, either to tune in live, gather your family, get ready for a lot of content, or to revisit and enjoy it then. Thank you. And now, here's Christiana. Christiana Figueres, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is actually quite exciting. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I guess we're going to be talking about the future of our planet, um, what science has to say about that future, especially about its climate. We're going to talk a bit about fear. We're going to talk a bit about hope, I think, and optimism and what those words mean and can mean and the causation and impact that perhaps they can have. It's just such a huge conversation. It may be the most important conversation there is uh, for any humans to have at the moment on our on our planet. But I'd like to start with you, Christiana. Tell us your story. I was born in the wild and wonderful and very unique country of Costa Rica, which is a country that has been blessed with a continuity of public policy that um, has protected our natural resources. And that commitment to protecting our natural resources was actually born in 1948, when it so happens that my father, who was a farmer at the time, was fully aware that the government that was in power at that time did not want to turn over the power to the democratically elected new president. And they 
refused to accept the uh, results of elections. So he warned them that if they did it again, that he would actually form a revolution. In that speech, he was interrupted by the military, taken prisoner and exported, and he went into exile for several years. From exile, he put together his own revolutionary army, plus uh, the arms necessary to wage the revolution, and then he smuggled himself back into the country and waged a revolution with his own revolutionary army and defeated the national army. The first thing that he did was to abolish the army because he said, in a mature democracy, there is no point in putting in scarce national resources into a military power that is only going to be there to exercise undue power. So he sent his revolutionary army home, everybody back to till the land, and he abolished the national army, and he took the budget that had been uh, dedicated to the army and put it into the protection of natural resources and into education. That is a legacy that Costa Ricans are incredibly proud of. We have one of the highest literacy and education rates in Latin America, and we have had continuity of policy around the protection of natural resources independently of which political party has been in power. So you can imagine that I am born into that very, very rich history, that very rich legacy, and frankly, I don't have much of an option but to totally love the history of my country and be very loyal to the protection of natural resources. So did that mean that like, like just growing up, like every conversation was always about the country and about politics and about questions of power and how we solve these big problems? Were you, were you ever allowed to be just a little girl? No, we were never allowed to be little children because um, my father had no patience for that. Everybody was expected to grow up in service of the country. But through my father's particular lens, which was always the protection of the most vulnerable and the creation of opportunities for those who had the least opportunities. That was the North Star that guided his life. And he was always very, very clear in certainly in guiding the country along that principle, but also in making sure that his children were guided by the same. But now when you get to a certain age and you begin to look back and go, whoa, well, where did all of this come from? And I see that my dedication to climate is because of my commitment to the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable are the poorest people around the world and future generations because they have had no responsibility. Neither poor people in every country nor future generations, in fact, even the young generation that we have right now, they have absolutely no responsibility in this and yet they are the ones that are going to be most affected. So in my book, those are the people who are most vulnerable to the negative impacts of climate change. And I realized today, looking back, that that is why I'm so passionate about climate change, because it is my way of protecting the most vulnerable. So before you got into that issue, I mean, you, you grew up with, a <laughs> seems like a certain set of expectations up, upon you, which may have, that may have been quite a heavy burden to carry at times, I would have thought. What, what did you do early on in your life and in, in your working career? Well, you know, I didn't get to climate change until I was in my 30s when I had two, uh, two children. But before that, I was very much always linked to policy in one way or another. I directed an institute that had to do with renewable energy. I was linked to agriculture policy in Costa Rica. I served in the foreign office of Costa Rica. And I directed the uh, planning office of Costa Rica that, uh, that decides on the financing that we get. It wasn't until I landed in the climate change field that I finally decided this is where I really want to be. And that, I think, is a true privilege, to be able to get up every morning and say, yes, absolutely, I want to do what I have to do. So what was it that gave you that certainty that this is it, 
that climate is the issue for you? I felt at home. I felt at home. I felt, yes, it was a, a rather esoteric topic uh, 30-something years ago, and there were only a few hundred people around the world who were studying themselves into, at that point, there was very little policy. There was mostly science on the table and, um, and huge expectations for policy. But I just felt this really, I just, I, I felt so much at home, as I say, and I thought being the mother of two young daughters, I thought this is an extension of what I understand to be my terms of reference as a mother. Because all of us who are parents want to improve the life of our children with respect to the life that we had. Because I witnessed the disappearance of a species that was endemic only to Costa Rica, that I had seen when I was a little girl, but by the time I had little girls and I wanted to take them to see this fantastic little golden toad, it had disappeared exactly the same year that my second daughter was born. I was truly in pain around it because I thought if I have witnessed the disappearance of one species, that means that around the world there must be many other species disappearing. And that means that I have received a planet with a certain richness and I am turning over a planet that is severely diminished to my daughters. That is not the terms of reference of a mother. And that's why I started reading myself into climate change. And it's honestly been my, my passion and, um, and my, the leitmotif throughout three and a half decades that I do this because... I am concerned about the future quality of life of uh, generations that are here now and certainly generations yet to come. So back in 1990 or thereabouts, almost no one was talking about climate other than a few scientists. You know, you saw gradually the world get more and more engaged in the topic. Roll the clock forward a bit to round about the time when you were charged with taking on this issue for the United Nations. What, what had happened just in the run-up to that? I um, had been negotiating the Climate Convention on behalf of Costa Rica. I was Costa Rican delegate for quite a few years. I was, again, uh, quite blessed in being able to represent my government at those negotiations, independently of which political party was in power, which is quite an accomplishment <laughs> because in Costa Rica, we're very, very political. We're very politicized. And my name is associated, obviously, with a certain political tendency, which is, uh, I would say, in, in U.S. terms, it would be the democratic side of the aisle. And I was always surprised, frankly, that when we lost elections, which we did basically every four years, because there was a, always a, a to and fro between the two majority parties, that even so, the elected president would ask me to continue uh, working on behalf of Costa Rica. And that really is to Costa Rica's credit, that they did not allow the policy and the negotiations that represented the international stand of Costa Rica on climate change to be politicized to the point where they said, well, if there's a Figueres daughter there, then obviously she can't represent the country's interests. So I had been there for quite a long time. I had been a Costa Rican delegate in Copenhagen, uh, and uh, many who are in climate change will remember the disaster in Copenhagen. By that time, I was already vice president of the convention on behalf of Latin America. And um, there was in that chaos, in that total chaos in, in Copenhagen, the um, Danish president came to me one night and said, would I step in for her with certain obligations vis-a-vis uh, -vis the delegates that she had that night? And I did so, not without a huge amount of trepidation. But what that evening's experience did for me was it whet my appetite to not only represent my little country, but actually to be able to lead the global conversation about this. And although I was thinking, and now what's going to happen, I did receive a call from the president of Costa Rica saying, would you be willing to stand as a candidate? 
Um, and I had to think about it for a little while because I knew it was a huge responsibility. But when I said yes, then I really put my heart into it. And I have to tell you, the first day that I stepped onto the campus of the um, Secretariat of the Convention, I was a fish that had finally been brought to water. So this was 2010, was it you were appointed in this role? Yes. And basically leading, I think all UN names seem to be so complicated. This was what the U- United Nations Framework Convention on Climate, but it's essentially it's mouthful, the body that... Huh? It's a mouthful, um, but, um, but it's the body charged with trying to bring the world together on this climate issue. Did you have a plan when you came in? You, you were coming in after this widely recognized disastrous outcome at Copenhagen. How, how were you feeling coming in? Did you know what you wanted to do? No, I honestly didn't know. And, you know, quite famously, I think I confessed on on your stage publicly for the first time that when I had my first press conference, someone asked me, so, Ms. Figueres, do you think that a global climate agreement will ever be possible? And before I could even talk to my brain or consult my brain, I heard my mouth say, not in my lifetime. And you know, that not in my lifetime, I think, was very reflective of the global mood. So let's, um, before we go and understand what then happened, let's talk about why people were so pessimistic about climate, like why the issue seemed so intractable. So explain to us, like, what what is the core of this issue and uh, why are some people so deeply worried about it? Well, people are so deeply worried about it because we understand more and more the science that is being explained to us of the projections of everything that we're seeing now and how that is actually going to become worse and worse. So currently we have fires that go from the Amazon to California to Australia to the Siberian Arctic, all of that in the past 12 months or less. That has never been seen before. And we are having more and more impacts, whether they be hurricanes that we've never seen before, typhoons, droughts that we've never seen before. All of those are actually increasing and is exactly what science warned us. So we are increasingly concerned about the impact of those natural disasters on the economy because much of our infrastructure is being affected, destroyed, losing value. The impact of that on the natural systems, because we are currently killing 200 species per day. When I say killing, I mean disappearing. We have 200 species a day that are disappearing. And we are particularly concerned about the impacts on human beings, because we are seeing more and more human beings hit to the point where they have water scarcity, food scarcity, they're losing their land, they can no longer stay there, they're being forced to migrate, we are beginning to see more and more violence. And all of this is only foretaste of the disastrous situation that we will have coming upon us in just a few years if we don't get our act together. So that is why so many people are concerned. The other part of your question was, so why does it seem so intractable? Well, it seems intractable for several reasons. First, because we humans are creatures of habit. And we have had the habit of using fossil fuels for at least 100 years. And so to get out of that habit, whether it is on a personal level, an economic level, an infrastructure level, and a finance level, it's all, you know, because we have fallen into that comfort area of using fossil fuels to fuel our development. And the industrialized countries have done a brilliant job of that, which is why they're industrialized. The developing countries have not done such a brilliant job, uh, but they are getting to the point where they will also be using as much fossil fuel energy generation in order to fuel their economy and bring their poor people out of poverty. The intractable nature is A, Because we are creatures of habit and because doing something different is always scary, in particular when you don't have full visibility into how you're going to get to the final destination. It's also intractable because there are so many seemingly mutually cancelling 
positions and interests on climate change. So let me just illustrate that. Low-lying Pacific Islands, of course, have the interest of stopping fossil fuel generation ASAP because their very subsistence and survival depends on that. 180 degrees contrasting with that position is the position of countries that export fossil fuels, and in particular, those countries, for example, the Gulf countries, for whom this is the only export product and for whom they have gotten out of their poverty through the extraction and sale of fossil fuels. So you cannot tell the small islands, sorry, you know, we're going to continue using fossil fuels and it doesn't really matter whether you survive or not. But you also cannot tell the Gulf countries, sorry, you have to stop the only export product that you have and you have to go back to where you were because we cannot continue that. So you see that these are very mutually exclusive positions, seemingly, that make the situation, actually, of the political situation for an agreement and for finding common ground very, very difficult. The third reason why it's intractable is because, at least at that time, prior to 2010, the technical solutions were not on the table. We have been incredibly blessed by the fact that many of the technologies that are the solutions, such as renewable energy, solar, wind, and increasingly batteries, are technologies that have received huge amount of investment, huge amount of attention, and have come down in cost. And finally, in addition to the dependence on fossil fuel or the survival because of, uh, of the addiction to fossil fuel, because you have 195 countries, all of whom are sovereign nations and all of whom operate in a very, very complex geopolitical world where climate change is one factor, but they also have to think about their trade relationships, their military relationships, their economic agreements. It's a very complicated world. Christiana, isn't another fundamental problem the different views of how you take history into account? You've got a situation where the West basically got rich off the back of fossil fuels and is, in some ways, as a huge emitter, is best positioned to see now a stabilizing and some level of decline. And then you've got most of the world's population still coming out of poverty and developing and with a hunger for a much better lifestyle. And usually the path to that has only come through one door of, of actually energy, coal stations and, and so forth. And so there's felt to be really difficult views about what, what is fair in this situation. Is it fair that everyone should have the same expectations about declining emissions? You know, it, that doesn't seem fair. But what, how, how do you find the fairness? And that, that's helped make it intractable, right? Absolutely. And, and that, you know, is the concept that we know in the Climate Convention as historical responsibility, uh, which is not an ideology or, you know, a myth. It's simply a physical fact that industrialized countries, as you have said, Chris, industrialized on the back of fossil fuels. And hence, they have full historical responsibility for having caused climate change. Now, the Climate Convention respects that principle. And one of the very, very difficult things to move forward was to get to the point where we could respect historical responsibility and look into the future. Because developing countries kept on blaming industrialized countries, you are the culprits, you have to pay for all of this. But developed countries looked at developing countries saying, yes, but in the very near future, you're actually going to surpass our emissions, just like China has already surpassed the emissions of every other country. It's the highest emitter today. And there will be other emerging developing countries that will also become major emitters in the near future. So you can understand that is a very difficult conversation. And that conversation of how to both respect the historical responsibility, but also be able to look into the future without blaming each other and say, actually, we have a share of responsibility. All of us co-participate in the responsibility into the future. That very, very difficult, contentious point was actually softened, although not solved, in Peru one year before Paris. And had we not been able 
to solve that or at least soften that discussion in Peru, we would not have had a Paris Agreement the year after. And how was that issue softened? That issue was softened because... um, Luckily, many stars aligned for us as we went into uh, preparing uh, Paris for so many years. But one star that aligned for us was the fact that uh, President Obama went into a second term and had the political capital for the first time, which he didn't have in the first term, to turn his attention toward climate. And uh, he was insightful enough to understand that the United States could be a leader, but that it could only lead so far if China didn't come on board. And so between enlightened leadership in China and enlightened leadership in the United States, those two giants actually walked hand in hand for at least two years before Paris with bilateral agreements on how they were going to A, do the best that they could within their own borders, but B, collaborate on so many different issues that would actually take their mitigation or their emission reduction potential to much higher levels because they were doing it together. And the lesson learned from that understanding between the U.S. and China was that the U.S. representing the previously highest emitter and China representing the then highest emitter and certainly into the future could really understand that this is not about blaming each other, that this is not about trying to find some magical formula that is going to give us a fair distribution of the atmospheric space that we still have, which every day is less and less. This was about collaborating with each other, and instead of looking at the scarcity of the resource, to look at the abundance of opportunities, the abundance of job creations, the abundance of clean energy that makes countries independent. So change the mental shift from a confrontation to understand that we have a new zero sum now. Either we all win together or we all lose together. It's not about you or me. It's about you and me winning together. And the United States and China did a beautiful job of demonstrating that. And that was the rationale that then very slowly pervaded throughout all of the other countries to move away from the previous zero-sum mentality to the new zero-sum. So talk about this a bit more in detail. And and if possible, give me like a story or two, like an an insider story of conversations that were had. Because it feels to me that one of of the key roles that you played here was almost as a sort of, uh, as a therapist with leaders sort of saying, you know, you're thinking about this the wrong way. You need to think about this differently in a way that can create value rather than just shift blame. The shift, many shifts in in many different mindsets had to be first germinated and fertilized and then established among these 195 countries before they could reach an agreement that the world had thought was, was impossible. But I can tell you the story actually of Peru. We had been working for two weeks. Peru was the um, international climate conference that was a year before Paris and had to prepare much of the ground for the then imminent agreement the next year. And we had worked uh, under the Peruvian presidency. We had worked very, very hard, all countries, the secretary of the presidency, everyone, to get to the legal text that could be agreed, which was basically the context for the Paris Agreement. It, It really laid out all of the elements that would then be included in the Paris Agreement. But then, on the last night, we reached the the very predictable problem of how do we solve uh, historical responsibility? Because the draft text that we had was one that was putting undue pressure on developing countries. And not surprisingly, China was not about to accept that. And so in in the book that's going to be published, actually, in February, uh, Tom and I, who have co-authored that book, that's Tom, Tom Karnak. Tom your, Karnak, your yes. Tom Rivet Karnak. We were in my office, I think about, I don't know, two, three o'clock in the morning on the last night, 
All negotiations were frozen. There was no movement forward. Developing countries were furious about the tax that put undue pressure on them. And we were sitting there, you know, thinking of the various ways that we could address this issue because we had to finish the next day. And then I hear a knock on my door, and I just totally knew who it was before I opened the door because every other cop before that one, whenever we reached a completely intractable moment, the offer of help was always from the Chinese minister. So on this occasion, he came and he said, you know, that text is completely unacceptable to developing countries. I am speaking on behalf of 130 developing countries we have met, and we will not accept that text. I knew that he was not bluffing. I could always count on him being very straightforward with me. So I said, okay, I get the message. What do you suggest? And he very cunningly said, do you remember the last bilateral agreement between the United States and China? I said, yes, I remember it very well. He said, look at that text. And he left. So, of course, I whip it out very quickly on my computer, and I see exactly what he's talking about. There is a paragraph in that uh, bilateral agreement between the United States and China that points the way away from confrontation and away from blaming for historical responsibility or future responsibility and points everyone in the direction of decarbonizing their economy for their own interest as well as for the planetary needs. And I went, oh my God, this man is absolutely right. So I write the text, which was only like two sentences, on a little piece of paper And I stuff them into one of my pockets, and I go over to the U.S. delegation and uh, present that text to uh, Todd Stern, the head of the U.S. delegation, and to Sue Benyaz, the leading lawyer. And I said, look, I think that China would accept something similar to this. So they looked at it. Of course, they had seen it before in a bilateral context, but now they had to translate those two sentences into the multilateral context of what does that mean for 195 nations, not just for two. So they had some changes that they needed. So I asked them to just make it right there on that little piece of paper. Then I marched myself back to the Chinese suggested those changes. They weren't quite happy with that. They made further changes. Then I marched myself back to the U.S. And they were finally fine with that. Then I asked the U.S., would you bring all of the industrialized countries with you to accept this text? So they said, okay, they will try that. Then I marched myself back over to China. And I said, I've asked the United States to accept your text and bring all industrialized countries on board. Would you, based on this text, bring all developing countries on board? So he said, well, I can't promise, but I will do my best. And very soon, I got through other people the message that both sides had accepted the text. So then I went and informed the Peruvian president, who was very concerned about the fact that we had reached a total standstill and paralysis. And I said, you know, I think our friends have given us a solution here. It's not easy to print, I can't remember, 500 or 600 copies of texts that are 20 or 30 pages long. But we finally got all of that done, and we called everybody back into the room. The last time that they had all been together in that negotiating room, we had come to a complete standstill in paralysis. So everybody was very, very nervous. But as they saw the text come out, they immediately identified those two sentences. So I went into the hall, I spoke to the leaders of both sides, leaders of the developing countries, leaders of the developed countries, to make absolutely sure that we had an agreement. And when I was absolutely sure that we had a final agreement, then I called the president, uh, Manuel Pulgar Vidal, and I said, you can come into the hall now. And as he walked in, everybody stood up and started to applaud because everybody knew that we had an agreement. I mean, is it fair to say, Christian, that's an amazing story. And we don't often get to hear really the sort of the inside scoop of how this stuff is done. I think a lot of ordinary people roll their eyes at uh, political leaders and don't think that they do that much. I mean, the, you know, being able to work all night and just not let go of this is, first of all, it's, it's cool to hear that. But it seems to me like what happened there is almost emblematic of your whole 
approach to Paris and, and indeed to, to this issue in general, which is change the framing. This is not a fight. This is something that is in it for all of us. The, the key framing there was, it's not one side telling the other what they must do. It's we are doing this for all of us. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a dramatic shift from confrontation to collaboration. You are known as this, I'm going to say, fierce optimist. Is that a fair description? How do you define that version of optimism? Because it feels like that is a tool that you have wielded repeatedly to shake people out of their assumptions. How did you use that in the build-up to Paris to continue the momentum from that moment in Peru into a much more ambitious global agreement? Yeah. Well, you call it fierce optimism. I, you know, my, my Buddhist aspirations, because I'm aspirationally a Buddhist student, wouldn't want me to call myself fierce. But I do have a different adjective, which is stubborn. And so I do call myself a, a stubborn optimist. And I invite everyone to become a stubborn optimist. And here's what I mean. The first part and the most important part of that is to be optimistic. Being optimistic does not mean celebrating success. Being optimistic is not the result of something that we have achieved, but rather is the necessary input that we have to have as an attitudinal stand toward any challenge that is worthwhile engaging in. You don't, as a runner, you don't say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to train for the marathon in the summer, but actually, I don't really think that I'll be able to run it. Probably not in that case. If you say, I'm going to train and I'm going to do everything that I can because I am going to run it, and you begin to visualize yourself running the entire marathon and going through the finish line, visualizing that and doing everything that you can to get ready for that moment, that is optimism. That is the decision that we have to take, that we are going to gather every single one of our ounces of energy, our ingenuity, our innovation, all the tools that we have, and on climate change, that we're going to gather capital, technology, and policy, which are the three points that we have to gather, in order to get us to our destination. And we have to believe that it's possible. I always said while we were preparing for Paris, impossible is not a fact. It's an attitude. It's only an attitude. And that is the attitude that we had to change. We had to change the attitude that a global agreement was impossible, which was where everybody was, including myself in 2010, change it to actually, it is possible. And not only is it possible, it's probable. And finally, not only is it probable, it's likely. And finally, not only is it likely, it is done. So that's optimism, right? That's optimism. Now, the stubborn part, is equally as important because you have to understand that in any challenge that is worth engaging on, there are always going to be vicissitudes, there are always going to be barriers, there are always going to be challenges, there are always going to be setbacks, but none of that can actually paralyze us. And so being stubborn about being optimistic is to say, okay, fine, that door was open, where is the window? So stubborn optimism, I think, is, you know, has certainly accompanied me for a long time. That was, I would say, the enabling attitude that allowed us to get to the Paris Agreement. And Chris, it is the same thing now. Christiana, I'd love to understand better this, this phrase you have, because it's such a powerful one about impossibility, not a fact. It's an attitude. The, the philosopher in me puzzles at that a bit, because obviously there are times when impossibility is a fact. I can't leap 100 feet into the air unaided, no matter what my attitude is. But you're referring to these complex human systems where people are trying to collaborate to get stuff done. And so often people are constantly making judgments, almost unconscious judgments. They say, you will never get that done. I know those people, they will never agree to that. So it seems to me the power of what you're saying is, are you sure? What if we could get them excited? What if we could change their attitudes? There could be a ripple effect where suddenly everyone recalculates what is possible and, and what isn't. 
Is, is that the sense of it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to your point that you cannot leap, how, how far do you, do you want to leap? A hundred feet in the air? Yes. Yeah. Um, unaided. Well, no, no, unaided. No, no okay, devices. I, I take your point, but my counterpoint to that, Chris, is we see athletes beating records all the time. And every time a new record is set, we immediately assume or think that that is the ceiling. And the next year, we beat that record because the attitude is, I can actually go farther. I can go higher. I can go quicker. So it is about the attitude. The best example that everyone knows, of course, is President Kennedy deciding that the United States was going to put a man on the moon. How? Nobody had a clue. But he said, we're going to do it. And he put a deadline. And that completely reorganized NASA. And people started thinking, not are we going to do it, but how are we going to do it? That was completely impossible when he announced it. So it is about stretching the bandwidth of possibility that is constrained by our mind. It is our mind, our attitude, that actually puts the limits on what is possible. And if we go in there and we stretch that and we say, okay, that was possible in the, in, in the past, but now what more can we do? And, you know, that's been proven time and time again. Look at everything that we have done in the IT sector. Would you have believed, I, when I graduated from college, Chris, I went to a mainframe computer room to do my thesis. I never would have dreamt that I would have had a computer that has 10,000 times the capacity of a mainframe computer and that it fits into my back pocket. You would have said, you know, in the 1980s, that is completely impossible. Well, it's not impossible. We make many things possible because of our attitude, because of our mindset. It's easy to critique optimists. People often think of them as sort of a little bit naive, you know, and, and I almost get annoyed at them, sort of, how, how dare you sit there feeling hopeful about the future when I'm, when I'm feeling so miserable? And what I hear you saying is, is actually, it's, it, you're not talking about a feeling at all. It's not, it's not just a feeling of hope. You're talking about a stance. You have to assume that you can get something done or you have or no you, chance or, or you're it. guaranteed not to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember Craig Venter said at, at a tech conference one year, he said, I, I honestly don't know who is right, the optimist or the pessimist. All I know is the optimist who gets stuff done. Uh, so I mean, you, you have this skill to persuade other people, even if they're not feeling it, to take the op optimistic stance, just to, to go with it and to say, imagine that other people are capable of doing more than you think they're doing. Now, what are you capable of? of doing. Exactly. And that you you and you just did that repeatedly. Tell us what actually happened at Paris because a lot of people it's a puzzling agreement to people people think of an international treaty as being, you know, these rules are set up and everyone has to abide by them and, you know, Kyoto uh, kind of worked that way. Paris didn't work that way and some people as a result have said there was nothing legally binding it's it's, it's actually amounts to nothing. You believe strongly, I believe strongly, it did not amount to nothing. What, what actually happened there? What did people agree to do? Well, first of all, it is legally binding. At least it is legally binding in the 184 countries that have ratified the Paris Agreement into their national law. Uh, but what, so, is, what is legally binding, though, is not, is not to do specific things to make specific emission targets, but to agree to a process. Is that right? Well, yes and no. So what is legally binding is the ultimate destination, which we called the long-term target, of reaching a global economy that has zero net emissions by 2050. Then we have also legally binding the process through which countries will continuously improve their efforts in order to get to carbon neutrality or zero emissions. And that is every five years, countries will come together at these yearly COPs that are 
organized by the convention, and they so COPS, will. COPS is um, sorry, COPS conference is of the parties. Conference of the parties. Yeah, it's yeah. not a bad cop and a good cop. No. Conference of the Parties, that's the acronym, is COP. And uh, they will come together, they do so yearly, as they will this year in Madrid and next year in Glasgow. But every five years, they will do so with the commitment of reviewing what they have done in the past five years, where their policies have been successful or not, where capital markets have shifted and hence more finance available for clean technologies, and certainly how technology has improved because that is what moves the fastest is technology. So once they have reviewed all of that, then they're expected to increase their ambition, as we call it, which is increase their commitments to further emission reductions for the next five years. And this is done in a five-year cycle. So the numbers that were registered under the Paris Agreement between 2014 and 2015, which was the years during which countries registered, we knew that those commitments that they were registering are definitely not going to take us to net zero emissions by 2050. They will definitely not protect a two-degree temperature rise, or certainly not a 1.5. But we also knew that no country could see its way through from 2015 to 2050 to figure out exactly how they were going to decarbonize their economy. That's impossible. So we said, fine, you don't have full visibility into the next 35 years. So we will take it bite by bite. We will take it on a five-year cyclical process where every five years you will increase based on what is technologically possible and at market value, what the policies that you have enacted and the capital that has been mobilized. And many people say, oh, well, you know, Paris doesn't take us to 250. Well, no, the first set, let's call it a vintage. If you're a wine drinker or, you know, anything else, there are vintages. So the 2015 vintage of uh, emission reductions definitely does not take us to where we need to get. In fact, if that is the only thing that countries do, eventually we get to 3.7 degrees of temperature increase, which is a disastrous world. But that is not the last thing that they're going to do every five years. In theory, legally binding, they have to come together to improve their efforts and increase their efforts. So even in Costa Rica, my home country, 2015 plus five is 2020. Hence, next year is the critical year because it is, after Paris, the most important year for climate because this is the year in which that increased mechanism every five years, which we call the ratchet mechanism, is going to be put to test for the first time. So that is why the Paris Agreement is not a static agreement. It's very different in its construct and its logic. It's very different to its antecedent, which was the Kyoto Protocol, which was very, very specifically for a certain number of years, and it was a static agreement. This is an agreement that accompanies the economic development of the world for the next decades until 2050. It is not static. It is something that actually moves with the improvement and the upgrade of the global economy. Right. So should, we should think of it not as a top-down, you must do this, but more as it's, it's an agreement to go on a journey together. Yes. We know what the desired final destination is. We do not know how to get there, but we are committed, each of us, to do the best we can. Now, and so the, the, the motivation for individual countries to play their part and not to cheat, like this is an issue where it would be easy for someone, like if every other country did their part and you didn't, you would benefit from everyone else's effort. So there's there's obvious incentive to, yeah, to free ride. And one description I've heard of, of you know, the how to think about this is that there's a form of sort of peer pressure that leaders are showing up and that they're expecting each other to do their bit. How does peer pressure work? I mean, if you're the leader of a country, do you really care that much about what the leader of another country says, as opposed to what your own citizens say? Isn't it an absolutely key part for this formula to work for citizens around the world to continuously dial up their engagement in this issue so that it's not okay for their own leaders to free ride? 
Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the waiting for Godot that we had for so many years that one country did not put its its foot forward because they were looking around over their shoulders, who is who's going to do what? That waiting for Godot, it, you know, doesn't work. Uh, and as you say, one leader, frankly, is not terribly impressed with what another leader does, which is why that is not part of the Paris Agreement at all. I was always very much against the peer pressure of one country or the other. I just didn't see any sense in it whatsoever. The logic in the Paris Agreement is what is good for each individual sovereign country? I spent inordinate amount of time with each and every one of those countries to figure out what was in their sustainable development plan. Where do they see their countries in 10, 15, 20 years? Within that national context, how does the global need to decarbonize fit into that? And in fact, how does global decarbonization help every country to achieve its national needs, interests, and aspirations. That is a completely different mindset and a completely different approach to what we had before. And that is why, among other reasons, why the Paris Agreement actually was able to be taken, because it's based on the confluence or the nexus between national interests and needs and the global imperative. But you're not saying that there's no sacrifice involved for a country to do the right thing on climate. Like you're not saying that just look at the technology and look at the facts and just go out and invest in renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it's going to be better for your country without sacrifice. Surely there actually is for many countries, especially developing countries, there is tension between the, the two goals of trying to bring your population to develop at speed and do the responsible thing on climate, isn't there? There's a tension there. Where do you see the tension, Chris? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're a country whose whole economy is based on exporting oil, for one thing, there would seem to be a tension there. But if you're, if you're India, say, and you've got huge supplies of coal, and that, that is still the fastest way to get people energy because even though solar is cheap, battery storage is still a bit expensive, it seems like there is, there is still the potential for some tension between the two goals. Well, India is a fascinating example of what you're talking about. So India had a very hard time, admittedly, uh, you know, wrapping itself around the uh, Paris Agreement. But here's where we are with India today. New solar is much cheaper than installed coal in India. That is why the Indian government has put a moratorium on new coal until the year 2027, because they know that they don't need to bring new coal onto the grid because they have a much cheaper source. Secondly, the targets that they had set for themselves for installation of renewable energy under the Paris Agreement in 2015 have now been upped by the Indian government, one-third higher than what they promised in Paris, and three years earlier, because the technology on solar has advanced so quickly and become so much cheaper and so much easier for them that they can actually go much quicker than they had originally thought. Thirdly, India, or Indian cities to be very specific, are some of the most polluted cities in the world. If you live and grow up in Delhi, you are statistically going to live six years less than if you lived in any other country exclusively because of air pollution. That is why Prime Minister Modi has a huge commitment to electrifying vehicles, and 70% of all vehicles in India have two wheels. He is completely committed to electrifying all light vehicles, the two-wheel motorcycles, the tuk-tuks, the rickshaws, the small vehicles, the buses, to electrify them all because of air pollution, because his health bills are way too high and he's losing too many people to air pollution. So he would rather have clean transportation so that he can actually lower his health bill and have actually happier and more healthy citizens. And finally, the transformation 
in battery storage technology has come from India. It is the Indian innovative mind that has decided that the way that we charge batteries for electric vehicles in the West is completely nonsense. Because if you buy a car or a rickshaw or motorcycle, whatever, with a battery, the battery is usually the most important part of that whole vehicle. And if you want to completely democratize and completely change your entire vehicular fleet, you have to have give access to those people who are not as endowed as being able to buy very expensive electric vehicles. So they are now producing small vehicles and now even buses that are electric, but they have changed the battery technology. Today in India, you no longer buy a vehicle that has a battery installed in it. You buy the vehicle without the battery, hence a much cheaper vehicle. And then you swap the battery in and out depending on how much use you give to the car. And you can go to any petrol station, not any, but 1,500 petrol stations already, to get your petrol for your vehicle. Or if you're part of the new guard, you swap out your battery. So putting these pieces together, Christiana, you're saying that um, there really isn't a conflict here, that the same enlightened decision-making that India should make for its own self-interest, for cleaner air and you know, for, for these cheaper forms of renewable energy is exactly what is needed to meet and exceed its Paris Agreement goals. Exactly. And if that applies generally to most countries, then that is indeed a really optimistic position. Leaving climate change aside, if you don't partake of uh, climate change, you don't understand what is happening, you close your eyes to the reality, fine, let's take that. Now, Despite that, would you not want to live in a city that is less polluted, that is less congested, that actually has much more efficient transportation because it's all interconnected with AI and with less private cars, with all cars being clean, not polluted, would you much ra not rather live in a city that has much more green cover wouldn't you rather live in a city that has parks, that actually helps to bring down heat? There's so many studies that say that if you live in close to a green area, you have actually much more brain power, you have a better attitude, you have better psychology. Wouldn't you rather have a better quality of life? Wouldn't you rather be able to eat food that is produced locally and hence much more nutritious than flying it around three times the planet before you eat it. The fact is that almost all the measures that we take for climate change are actually measures that we take for our own improvement of quality of life of humanity. So whether you want to do climate change addressing or not, actually, if we address climate change, we will predominantly be creating a so much better world for everyone. Do you think that environmentalists have made a bit of a mistake then and that they're often characterized as sort of wagging fingers and hectoring people to do the right thing? Perhaps much more powerful just to say, let us help you dream of a more beautiful future. Exactly. It's I couldn't say it better than that. And yet you're worried about certainly where the, where the Paris Agreement is right now. Talk about that worry. Why, why are we at a fragile moment right now? I am concerned not with the direction of progress because there is very clear tendency toward decarbonizing the economy. So I'm not concerned about the direction. I'm concerned about scale and speed. If it were not for the impacts of climate change and the cumulative effect of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, then we could take our own sweet time in building these wonderful cities and electrifying vehicles and, you know, putting all the grids on renewable and all of those wonderful things. And we could just do it at the pace that we would want to. But that is actually not the reality that we're living in. We're living in a reality of an exponentially accelerating negative impact of climate change. Therefore, we have to be very intentionally about exponentially increasing the scale and the speed with which we deploy solutions. We are there with renewable energy. We're almost there with clean vehicles. We are almost there with finance of clean technologies. We're most definitely not there at all on everything to do with land use. So on the whole, I am still concerned about scale and speed. I mean, the fact is that 
despite Paris, emissions have continued to rise so far. I mean, I, th- I think we're at like 37 gigatons or something of, of emissions and still still rising. Like how critical is it that that trend is changed? When must it change by? How fast must it change? And, and what can, what must the world really be thinking about now and focused on now to do that? It's absolutely critical to reverse the trend on emissions. And science has been pollutedly clear. What we have to do is bend the curve. Currently, we're still on an up curve. We have to bend that curve down and begin the descent of emissions. And here is the pace at which we have to do that. We have to bend that curve by next year, start on the descent, and be at one half the current global emissions by 2030. And then another half by 2040 and another half, final half by 2050. But it is the 10 years of the decade of the 20s that is going to determine whether we can actually get to zero net emissions by 2050 or not. If we're able to halve our emissions, then we can do the rest. I mean, someone just listening to that might say, okay, we have to halve the emissions. But I mean, what you're talking about there, because emissions are so tightly associated with every aspect of the industrial economy, you're really talking about radically changing at least half of the economy or slashing it in half somehow or whatever to get to that kind of change. I mean, it's, an, it's a completely radical thing to do. And there are definitely a lot of people out there who would say that is impossible, to which you would say... Impossible is not a fact. It's only an attitude. <laughs> That's what I will say. It's not about slashing the economy. It's about slashing the carbon intensity of the economy. Very different because economy has to continue to grow in developing countries. We cannot stop the growth of developing countries because they need to bring their people out of poverty. So what we have to do is to delink two curves that have been historically bound to each other. One is GDP growth and the other one is GHG growth, greenhouse gases growth. Those have been historically linked for 100 years because all of our economic development has been based on fossil fuels. Now take India. India is in the process of delinking its GDP from its GHG. It has put a moratorium on coal. Uh, it is disseminating solar to as many houses as they can. His commitment is to provide electricity to every single Indian home. That's going to be clean and electricity. And the moment you do that, you increase GDP. So India, I think, is a very, very good example of what we need to do globally. It's not about stopping growth. It's not about paralyzing the GDP. It is about extracting the carbon intensity from that and moving the fuel of growth over to clean technologies. We have just announced, you and Ted, that we're working on this together, actually. It's an exciting moment for Ted and um, the initiative that is out there. It's called Countdown that we're working on together, which is exactly, you know, the counting down of those emissions, the bending mm-hmm. of the of the curve. Mm-hmm. What intrigues you about, about this initiative? What is different about it? And um, what, what, do you, what are your hopes for it? Well, um, many things. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, the, the first is, Chris, I, I think that Ted's Climate Countdown will do something that I have aspired to do for many years unsuccessfully, which is to take this conversation outside of the climate bubble. In order to reach the global targets, we need to go beyond those of us in the climate community. The second reason is precisely that, the opportunity. I hope that this is really going to further the understanding that decarbonizing our economy certainly is a moral responsibility, but it is an economic opportunity. And that the many projects that we are going to put there on stage will show that this is about people, certainly. It's about planet, but it's also about profit. 
And that that triple bottom line is exactly what we all need to pursue because one without the other is just not going to make it. And the third thing that I'm very excited about, uh, Chris, is that I really think that you have managed to position TED in the imagination of people. People look to TED Talks and to TED events to spark their imagination, to spark their thinking, to innovate, uh, you know, to, to really get out of our rut of thinking and move over to a different mindset, to a different way of thinking about things. And I think that's exactly what we need. We have to get out of our mental rut and understand that this is uh, really quite exciting and that we as human beings stand for the first time in the history of humanity in the incredibly privileged position of having full power of designing our future. We have never had that power ever mm. in the history of mankind, humankind, as my daughters would correct me. Um, and that's <laughs> what we have right now. We are holding the pen in our hands and we can and we will. We are actually going to define a very, very wonderful future. One of the things that's been exciting at TED over the last few years has been the spread of these TEDx groups around the world who self-organize. Mm -hmm. And um, we're applying this very much to this initiative because climate is often framed as a problem that our political leaders have to solve and our job is to protest and get angry at them. It's also a problem that all of us have to solve. And, and we've got really excited at the thought of having literally thousands of groups around the world engaging on this issue, company by company, city by city. People often feel powerless about it and do feel this sort of just overwhelming sense of dread, but probably have more power than they know. You know, 20 organized employees in a, in a company uh, working with the C-suite can actually get a lot done in terms of making the kind of bold for the long-term decisions for that company about how to contribute to that beautiful um, carbon emission-free future that we all all dream of. Yes, and, absolutely. Um, and Christiana, to have, to have you and Tom and many, many others engaged in helping frame this initiative is, is unbelievably exciting. I guess I should say that certainly for this initiative, people can go to countdown.ted.com and uh, find out more. For your work and your thinking, where can they find out more? You've got a book coming. How, how can people connect with you and get more information on that? Yeah, we have a book coming in February that's entitled The Future We Choose that captures many of the ideas that I have shared with you today. We also have a podcast uh, entitled Outrage and Optimism. And the reason why we've given that title, Tom and I, to that podcast is because we think that outrage and optimism are two very powerful sentiments that we have to balance. And so we have a podcast that addresses, uh, addresses that. Plus, of course, we have our website, globaloptimism.com. It seems aligned with what you believe and who you are, Christiana. And uh, it's been an absolute treat to speak with you. I, I do think that history will judge you as one of the true heroes of the 21st century. And, um, but I guess it all depends on how things go from now on. So, well, what we really want is for every single adult alive right now to be the hero. That's what we want. <laughs> in, indeed, everyone, everyone has a role to play. Thank you so much for this time, Christiana. Thank you very much, Chris. Here's to the future. Thanks for listening. And remember, to catch our launch event, visit countdown.ted.com at 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time on Saturday, October 10th. Thanks. This week's show was produced by Lacey Roberts and Kristen Schwab at Transmitter Media. Our production manager is Roxanne Hylash. Our show is mixed by David Herman. Our theme music is by Alison Leighton-Brown. Special thanks to my colleague, Michelle Quint. And that's it for season three of the TED Interview. We'll be back soon with more deep dives with great minds. I'm Chris Anderson. Thanks so much for listening.